Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tastatinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is our venerable and ever-vigilant executive producer, Jennifer Byrne of the CBA. Hi, Jen. Hey, John. Jen, we are joined today by a pillar of Chicago journalism, Eric Zorn. Eric is a longtime op-ed columnist for the Chicago Tribune, where he's been working since 1980, covering local news and politics. Eric is also the co-author of the book Murder of Innocence, The Tragic Life and Final Rampage of Lori Dan, the Schoolhouse Killer, later made into a made-for-TV movie. Everyone in the Chicago area in their mid-30s and older will remember Lori Dan's shooting spree, and many in the wider nation as well. If it wasn't the first school shooting in modern America, it was the first widely covered school shooting. We'll hopefully discuss some of the details in a bit, but just to refresh memories, on May 20th, 1988, Dan, a divorced babysitter aged 30 in the affluent Chicago suburb of Winneka, delivered arsenic-laced food to numerous students, children, and families. She then drove to an elementary school where she attempted but failed to detonate a homemade firebomb. She then drove to another elementary school where she shot five children ranging in ages from six to eight, killing one and wounding four others. She only stopped when a teacher attempted to disarm her and her remaining pistols jammed. A manhunt ensued with schools placed on lockdown all over the northern Chicago suburbs. Dan then took refuge with a nearby family, bursting into their home and claiming she was raped and running from her attacker. The family became suspicious when she refused to call the police. The family's son, an all-American swimmer at the University of Illinois, attempted to disarm Dan, at which point she shot him in the chest. He would thankfully later live. With the police soon closing in on the house, Dan took her own life, ending the day's violence but sparking a debate that continued on. Dan's case spurred discussions on gun control policy, on mental health treatment, on school safety, and on civil liberties, all the topics that have some 30 years later become an almost weekly part of our national conversation. This wasn't the first school shooting in the country's history, but it was one of the most widely covered and talked about, arguably starting what has, a few decades later, become a tragic trend. Eric is here to talk with us today about Lori Dan, about his experience with the case, and about what that case can tell us about what's happening in our country today. Eric, welcome to At The Bar. Nice to see you guys both. So... I don't know where to begin or really if we've bitten off more than we can chew with this whole topic. There's a lot of ground to cover. Um, but I thought we could start with discussing Lori Dan's case and your book, which is by far the most extensive, detailed, and gripping account of that terrible day and the events surrounding it. How did you come to this topic first? Well, it was uh, – this happened. I was a columnist in the suburban uh, – bureaus for the Tribune at the time. And uh, my co-authors were uh, general assignment reporters downtown. Uh, two of them had been had been up covering the what was going on outside the home, you know, where she was holed up with the uh, Andrew family up there. And uh, and after we were good friends, three of us were good friends, and we got to talking about about how interesting it was that this had happened and how uh, inexplicable it seemed. Like you have this this young woman who was raised in in privilege. And suddenly she, you know, goes off the deep end and does all these things. You know, you you actually there's in your rundown of things she did. She also went to a home where she used to babysit the kids and tried to burn the place down. Right. I mean, it was like I mean, it was it's actually hard to keep track of all the, all the stuff she did that day. So how did this happen? The question we began asking. So we we the three of us proposed to the Tribune magazine uh, staff that we do a, a year later review of what went on because there were still so many questions. There was a lot of stuff that was written about. 
uh, gun control and about school safety and, and, and mental health and so on. But nobody really knew what her sickness was and how this had happened. And so what we did is we just went – and the three of us went and we just like – Went to every police department. There was like in Highland Park, Glencoe, and Winnetka because she'd moved around up there and, and went through all their files about her. Uh, she also lived in Madison for a while. We went through uh, – went up there, talked to the police there, talked to students there. She lived in a, in, a, in student housing there. Uh, and we just like sort of pulled that all apart to try and, – and the basic idea of the, of the magazine article was how did this happen? How, how does – you know, we talk kind of glibly I think about – well, this is a mental health problem. It's mental illness. But what kind of mental health issue is this and how does it result? I mean, a lot of people have mental illness. A lot of people are on medication. A lot of people, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. Why does one person go and shoot somebody and how could it have been stopped? And that was sort of our, our motivation. And we, and we did this and we, and we ended up, we wrote, I think, like 6,000 words, something like that. And we just felt like we had just barely scratched the surface of what we had. So we approached an agent in New York and said, hey, look, this is a, a great story. Remember this story because it had been all over the news. I mean, this was, you know, you think you think now, okay, one kid dies in a school shooting. It's a sad story, but it's a one or two day story in 2019. Uh, back then, it went on for weeks, especially around here. This didn't right. happen. And it just, then. it was, it was a, it was, part of it was that it was in Winnetka. Okay, yeah. um, and Winnetka is for anybody who doesn't know is listening to this. I mean, Winnetka is a, is one of the wealthiest suburbs in the area, maybe the wealthiest suburb in, in the Chicago area. And you know, how does this happen in a place like that? Right. And and Lori Dan came from wealth. She she was raised in Highland Park, and she was the only child of a wealthy accountant. And so you think, okay, so she's raised in privilege, and she lives in one of the nicest places in the country, and and so so, so all these things. It's, Kind of came together to make it a really big story, and so the publishers bit. You know, the, the, we got Warner Books gave us a, gave us a nice contract to write the book, and uh, and so then we just basically put together all of our notes, and we had uh, over time gotten the confidence of the family of the victim, the boy who was killed, and they talked to us at, at great length. And of course, you know, victims they're good for some background detail and to make the reader you know feel and understand. The pain of the loss, but they they come in really at the very very end of the story. Right. The, the person who was most helpful to us was Russell Dan, uh, Lori's ex husband, and and he trusted us, uh, and I, I think we repaid his trust. I mean, I'm still friendly with Russell um, after all these years. That that he trusted us with with everything. With the op he opened up. Every file he had, every letter he had, every photo album he had, and, and you can tell that this this book is. I mean, first of all, I picked it up and read it within 48 hours, I think, because it's just – it's such a page turner. And I say that as a compliment to you and your co-authors, but also it's true crime, but it's just so fascinating, I think, particularly as a resident of the Chicago land area, people nationwide would be interested in this because for the reasons you said, this is the least likely person and place for right. something like this to happen, you would assume. Of course, I'm being – you know, right, stereotypic right, course, when I say that, course. but I mean, she's a wealthy woman from one of the wealthiest suburbs in the United States of America. She had, you know, every opportunity for excellent education and schooling, although that never materialized into much for her. But, you know, and, and as a mother reading this, you're so terrified thinking, 
you know, you try to provide the best for your kids and put them into the best community, the best school, et cetera, and that's still not protecting them from from something so tragic from happening potentially. Well, that, of course, that was the other aspect of this, which was that it can happen anywhere. Right. And, that's, and that was what was so terrifying about it. But, but again, since that time – Places like Columbine and and Parkland, those places, or 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 Sandy Hook, those are all really nice places. They may not be the richest suburb in in the world, but but it is. These are these are places where people have means that people ha- do not expect this kind of thing to happen. So right. So it's a it's a that's one of the reasons why it was such a shocking story, and why we I think we were able to get so many people interested in it right away, and. And I really think that I'm, I'm glad you liked the book a lot, and, and, and it, was, it was the level of detail that we were able to get. And you know, we started off basically we we made a master timeline, uh, starting with Lori's birth, basically, and mm-hmm. everything we could find, every yearbook entry, every friend from school, every you know, and we just like put it together just in com- in complete chronological order. Right. The entire the entire narrative is was in a huge. In chronological order, and then we and then we sort of then we said, okay, now we have to tell a story. And there was a lot and, there. She had years and years of deeply disturbing behavior, right? Right. There was a lot. Of, we found you know her old boyfriends. We found uh, or people she dated. We found her you know old roommates. Um, it was. Uh, pe- but at the, the same time, you say that, John. I would actually say that. As I was reading it, my mind kept shifting and changing about this person um, because you know you know what the end of the story is, but some of the behaviors, while maybe creepy, if I had just learned about it in isolation, I wouldn't assume, oh, this person's going to go on a murder rampage around, you know, and kill a bunch of kids or attempt to kill a bunch of kids. I mean. Some of the clinginess with the boyfriends and and some of those things as you were moving along through the story, you could imagine that someone who might have mental illness or be slightly unhinged would do this. But, you know, so from your perspective, were there any specific accounts from people in our past that tipped you? Yes. I think one of the the really key moments in this case was when – or in this story, I should say, is when – Russell Dan, when they, after they had split up, and Russell Dan woke up one night, and he and he there was an intruder in his apartment. He got stabbed in the heart um, with an ice pick, and he knew it was Lori. He didn't see her because the person ran out, but he knew he knew it was Lori. He had all the hallmarks of, of something Lori did. And he called the police, and they were like, "Well," then it sounded like, and they thought, "Well, maybe he had faked it that he had because he didn't kill him. You know, it was like it, it had just it punctured his chest, but it didn't go into his heart or anything like that." And he and, and Russell, you know, told the parents about this, and he let people know about this. And then subsequent to that, her psychiatrist, um, when she was up in Madison, wanted to institutionalize her. He thought that she was becoming a danger to herself and others because of all of her troubling behavior. He called her father, and he asked, uh, you know, are there behaviors that would make you think that she's a danger to self or others? And he said no. And so there, there's an element of this story that goes beyond mental illness that goes into denial. And I think we came down in the end pretty hard on her parents, and her father in particular. Her mother, I think, was a very weak person. And her father uh, was uh, a strong person, but he was, he was ill-equipped, let's just say, and to deal with, with this kind of problem. And he kept – he kept denying it, and I think I think part of, I think part of that is also part of this milieu. I mean, I think when you look at at when you're when you live in wealth, you grow up in wealth, and all these kids around you are going to the Ivy League schools, and they're and they're succeeding in in all kinds of different ways, and then you have 
this daughter who is kind of a weirdo, who has no self-confidence, who engages in these kind of odd behaviors. And so what so they like they gave her Let, a nose. Let's describe to, some of those for our audience. Well, she was she would ride elevators for hours she at ride, a time. Yeah, she, ride, she she used to hoard uh, raw meat. Uh, she would babysit for people and like hack up the furniture, and then she would say, "Oh, I let some guy in to use the phone, and then I, I he leaves the phone, and then when I came out, he had gone, and he it was just you know this like stuff didn't make any sense. She was stealing frozen food from the people that she was babysitting, for, like lots yeah. of food, not just." Not just like one thing. Yeah, but like, like huge garbage bags, bags full, full of food. You know, they and discovered like a freezer had been emptied and stuff like that. I mean, this was this was this was very sort of troubling and weird behavior that went beyond just kookiness. I mean, I think right. she started off kind of kooky, but but you have to remember that I mean, one of the things I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting that her parents had her get a nose job and her parents had her pin her ears back. I guess she had ears that stuck out, and her parents did that. So it was all I think it was for them. It was all about sort of trying to have this perfect daughter and they didn't have a perfect daughter and they didn't know what to do about it. And so they didn't get her into the kind of care she needed. And then when she needed more care, they would just like say, oh, go see this doctor, go see this doctor. And then and then when the doctor said, okay, we need to put her into an institution because she needs a greater level of care, they're like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So so uh, it it was, I think, you know, a combination of, of some – Mental condition and and in retrospect, they thought that she her her main problem was obsessive compulsive disorder, and it would explain some of her really repetitive behaviors. And mm-hmm. and she would wear the plastic gloves or rubber gloves so she wouldn't have to touch doorknobs and things but like yet, that. But yet, some of the things seem to go beyond the scope of that. Oh, way beyond you, that. Yeah, way beyond that. So the I think, raw meat well, collecting yes. being. One of the right, which is which, people. which, which some doctors told us was was uh, symptomatic of schizophrenia. Right. Other doctors said that the the way her mood changed, the way her affect changed, was was uh, more symptomatic of manic depression. Uh, but there are people with schizophrenia who are not dangerous. There are people with manic depression who aren't dangerous. The other thing that was going on was that because of where she was living and how she was how this was being coordinated, she was seeing a doctor in Madison. She was seeing a doctor here in in the Chicago area. They were prescribing her. One guy was prescribing her lithium for depression. The guy was prescribing her anaphronel for OCD. And the you know the the interaction of these drugs, and then she was also taking massive quantities of birth control pills for reasons that are, I mean, why you would take more than one I don't know, but but this part of part of uh, uh, some issues that she had. So she has she has she's like a, a chemistry experiment in some ways going on, and no one is really overseeing this. She doesn't have one doctor, and the and the one doctor who tried uh, Dr. Greist up in in Madison was rebuffed. And she just stopped showing up to appointments there. So, so it's you know when you, when you talk about what's the one of the things that we really were looking for is like what's the lesson here? What do you what do you right. pull out of a story like this? What do you how can you how can you say well what could have been done differently? It's it's fairly obvious to me that you needed somebody who was going to be quarterbacking her situation, someone who was not ashamed of her and who could make sure that she was getting the right treatment and getting the right kind of support. And she mm-hmm. wasn't getting that. And, right. and so she was left to drift. And, so, and, you know, why you would have someone in her condition living up in Madison and in, in, student, in student housing when she wasn't a student, when everyone thought she was a weird elevator lady, then why you would then move her into a dorm at Northwestern uh, when her parents lived, you know, 15 minutes away from there or so. Well, so, you know, before know. We, we sat down for this interview, we had a little prep call. And you, during that conversation – essentially brought up this issue of the parents being the ones to, I don't want to say to blame, but were the ones that 
were empowered to do something and failed to. But it got me thinking about how many interactions she had with different different facets of our society. Um, well, law, law enforcement, enforcement, the local police, with the court knew. system during the divorce proceeding, with the universities themselves. I mean, security was alerted to the behaviors, the thefts, the break-ins at at Northwestern. I recall at least. I'm not. I know that the university was at at one point alerted to the behaviors at Madison, but I'm not sure where in the chain of events that yeah, I, occurred. I I, she was living in private housing up there. Uh, right. Uh, uh, one of those student high rises that- uh, But that I the, recall so. the incident where she was found in the garbage facility, wrapped in a garbage bag. And so there were outsiders that saw and were alerted to the problems, even concerned citizens. The families that she was babysitting for. Some of them reported the thefts and the behaviors to the police. The father even paid restitution to one of the families at a point I remember. But it got me thinking, okay, so not everybody has parents, right? Not everybody has someone in their corner. There are a lot of mentally ill people, any of whom could potentially reach a breaking point. Where does our society drop the ball? Where do these institutions drop the ball? I mean, I don't know if that's a question we can answer today, but it did get me thinking about, you know, could there have been interventions at any of these other points throughout her story? Oh, yeah, there could have been. And one of the things that I find interesting about this was that the police – who I think had a decent handle on her up in the north suburbs, still often thought of this as being like, you know, a divorce gun. Domestic. Dad. Right. And, yeah. and I, you know, I, like I said, I've gotten to know Russell Dan pretty well. At, at the time, we certainly got to know him pretty well. And, and he's, he's a cocky guy. And, right. and uh, I think he comes off as a little brash and maybe a little bit condescending. I'm not sure how the police <laughs> reacted to him, but, but, uh, uh, he's also he, he just had, had this he has this this certainty about himself that you could probably also see in uh, not an abusive husband but a, you know someone who is a manipulative person right. and I don't think he is I think he's very I think he's a really genuine person who was genuinely concerned about Laurie but no one would, people weren't listening to him the, and the police are, are limited in there in there because it's like it's, things are sort of atomized up there you have one department the other department they're not like getting together and talking about. You know, crazy ladies with meat. Uh, when they have regional meetings, they're right. talking about you know car theft rings and so on. So well, and you know, first of all, if the genders were reversed, if the roles were reversed, right? I mean, we're. I think, unfortunately, or you know, in this circumstance, the presumption is that a, maybe a woman isn't isn't as capable or isn't as likely to to take it to the degree. And so when you hear of a, a woman being victimized in a domestic or divorce case, maybe the police would have jumped. You know, Jumped in a little bit more. I had never thought of that until right now, but I think you're probably right. I think that if this had been Larry Dan and every, all these things had been reversed, that that the police and everybody might have reacted differently. Because I mean, she's she's out buying guns, right? Her father knows she's buying guns. Well, if you think about it, I mean, if this were if this were a husband in a divorce, I mean, I was a divorce practitioner okay. before coming to work for the yeah. CBA. So I have some firsthand experience with going into, you know, domestic violence court and so forth, and just seeing people, you know, plead for a, a restraining order, for example. And I feel that even the most even-minded of judges are predisposed to give more sympathy to a woman who is uh, an alleged victim in a circumstance like this. So, you know, if the roles were reversed, I don't know, you know, if, I think if it would have you know, gone I, to this point. It's interesting you should bring it up because it, it never occurred to me, but as you bring it up, yeah, I think that's probably right, that if you, if you sort of Think about all these situations. You think 
a man behaving in that way has seem would probably seem to have a lot more menace and would draw more attention from police would would draw even more attention from the parents and people will say like this guy he's out buying guns and he's hoarding meat and slashing furniture this this guy needs to be locked away but but Lori was she was like 5 3 100 pounds when she I mean she was like kind a of, 30 year old woman she's kind of tiny and so yeah. so I think a lot of people dismissed her as kooky eccentric you know, but people but were still letting her babysit for their kids. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, unbelievable that that was happening. So, so um, there is something to that, and I never really <laughs> thought about it until right now. So, just just thirty years too late, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I imagine those predispositions would only be in re- reinforced rather because she was claiming that her ex husband sexually right. abused her, right, and that she was the victim of abuse, and that could explain from the out from an outsider's perspective some of her stranger behaviors some yeah yeah she was and and she had this sort of victim mentality and she was she carried these grudges against people like in her in her extended family her in-law her in-law family she was like making all these prank calls and and, right. ha- and harassing calls and again this seemed like annoying behavior but i don't think anybody thought that she was going to you know, shoot up a school and try to poison a bunch of college kids and try to burn down a house and set off bombs in schools and so on. I didn't mean, so to that point, didn't the FBI get involved shortly before the shootings? I thought I read it was either in your book or maybe in the People magazine article when they covered it shortly after that the FBI shortly before the shootings had informed local police that she should be considered armed and dangerous. Yeah, but it was one of those – I think it was more pro forma than, okay. than uh, you know, something like all, an all-points bulletin or anything like that. Yeah. It, it clearly didn't rise to the level of anybody – and she actually thought that she, she was going to do all the – you know, create all this mayhem – and then get in her car and drive up back up to Madison, and and uh, no one would know who it was. So how do we know that? Oh well, I think we know it because she still had a place up there, and she got turned around. She was going; she wanted to head back out Tower Road, and she guess turned left too soon, and she ended up on this court, which is where the house was. Mm-hmm. It was like a so sort of a, a, a cul-de-sac. And then in, in trying to turn around, her car got stuck. This and is the, this, the for our audience. This is the house where she eventually the, the, killed this herself. The Andrew house, yeah, yeah. where Phil, Phil Andrew, the uh, the uh, college swimmer, was there, and uh, we we assume that. I, I think we don't. We really don't know what her game plan was. But right. she had left enough tracks around. People knew where she was, and if you had, and she had been to the house where she set the fire. People knew that she'd been there, so they would have figured it out pretty quickly, I think. But but she wasn't. I mean, clearly she wasn't thinking straight. And she went. She went to Hubbard Woods. It's not clear that she had Hubbard Woods in mind. There was no. She had no connection to that school, and she didn't know. She wasn't going after any particular kids. We think she chose classroom seven because seven was her lucky number. Mm. And she went into classroom seven after she had found this kid in the in the uh, bathroom. And, and then she wants you know, the hero of the story is the substitute teacher who refused right. to herd the kids. This she said, "I want you know get all the kids together in the corner," and the substitute teacher wouldn't do it. And if she had. You might have had you – know, we had one kid killed, but you could have had six, seven, eight, nine kids killed because she was ready to, ready to go. So it was it was uh, lucky in that respect. But we don't know the method uh, to, to her madness, so to speak. I mean we don't know. She was going after – some of the things made sense. Some of the fraternities where she left poison treats or poison juice boxes or juice pouches, she had had bad dealings with them. 
But other things, no, no one was ever able to figure out, like, what is the connection? What is the, you know, why did she have a grudge against these people? Uh, and it wasn't clear. She didn't leave any writings that would have shed much light on that. So. And there was no suicide note. No suicide. Well, she, I don't think she thought she was going to kill herself. Right. But I think when she got cornered, then then she uh, uh, she decided she was going to do that. And you think, I, I really wonder what would have happened if Phil Andrew had had really realized what was going on and disarmed her when he had the chance because he didn't. And he, he talked about that with, with us that uh, there were plenty of times. What happened, I mean, just to refresh, she she bursts into this house, you know, with, wrapped in a plastic bag that she had in her car and says, I've been raped and I shot my assailant and I'm really concerned. And they said, well, let's call the police. And she says, no, 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 no. We can't call the police. It's, you know, for some some crazy reason. Well, let's call your mom. And so she calls her mom and talks to her mom uh, and tells her she's done something terrible and she's really sorry. And Phil is standing nearby and she, he knows this one's got a gun, but he he feels he that she's been traumatized. Right. She's been sexually attacked. So he doesn't want to like grab her and take the gun away. But if he had, uh, if he had realized what was going on, if, you know, then, then we might have had a lot more answers to what was going on, than, of course, than we now do because she then shot him in the right. chest, and he fortunately survived. And then she went upstairs to one of the girls' bedrooms and shot herself in the mouth, and that was it. Um, and we didn't no, – nobody knew what had happened because the police hadn't even arrived there yet. And she might she might have lived. She might have been there for, for an hour or two, or she probably we, – we figured she probably just went up there and shot herself. But, but uh, you know, her father came out and was outside into the bullhorn mm -hmm. begging her to come out. And, uh, and at this point – you know, as the story was just unfolding in the Chicago media, we were all thinking, "Oh my God, this this poor family, this poor father," and and Russell, her ex husband, was trying was out there too, and everyone was was uh, you know, it, it just looked like who could have possibly seen anything going on here? Who would have known that this had happened? And and uh, of course, as it developed later, uh, there, there, there was a lot. That. There was a lot of things that people could have seen, could have done, should have done. Um, and again, I, I don't. I, I do think that Russell himself raised a lot of alarms. And this isn't just because he gave us all this time. You know, he did he did talk to us a lot and gave us a lot, but but even independent interviews with the police and so on, that they were pretty clear that, that Russell had been saying, you know, this woman is in big trouble. And yet a lot of people were saying, yeah, yeah, you know, you don't like your ex-wife. You right. know? <laughs> uh, and, and again, coming from the perspective of being involved in divorce cases, every single client that comes in says that my situation is totally unique. Yeah. And you've heard it a million times. And, you know, police officers, it's it's that and then some. I mean, they're jaded at that point with, you know, yeah. having heard it before, you know, and so they don't presume that it's any special situation. It's just someone that's going through a nasty divorce and having an acrimonious proceeding and they're throwing blame back and forth and it's really not that serious. I could see I could see that happening. Yeah. Certainly. So so I think it was really a big element of this which was this combination of the fact that they were a, a, a divorcing couple and people that were were having that feeling like oh yeah, you know, you guys and your accusations and counterclaims and so on. Plus the family like, like I say Lori's parents just weren't taking it seriously enough. And, you know, where that all goes, they never talked to us. And we tried a lot. We went down to Florida and, you know, knocked on their condo door down there to try to get them to talk to us soon because we really wanted their side of the story. We weren't trying to ambush them. It was like, tell us, fill in all the gaps in this in this girl's story. But I think they realized that 
that as they looked back on it, that how culpable they were, how much they had neglected to take it seriously enough. Clearly, it seems like so. they just weren't there that much. That's, that was really the impression that we got. Yeah. They were in Florida a lot. They were, I mean, even during this stint in Madison, A, why was she there, like you said? And B, I mean, they weren't visiting her. There wasn't, right. they just weren't in contact other than to have these sort of like oversight calls with the doctor every so often. Yeah, well, well, like. yeah a scene that, that is sort of haunting to me is, you know, the the marriage between Russell and Lori was really deteriorating. And and he was trying to support her while still getting out of the marriage. He was he he felt mm-hmm. kind of he felt guilty about what was going on because he knew that she was really lost without him. And and so he was he was trying to help her out and she would call her parents in Florida. They they spent most of their time in Florida. And and finally, when the marriage was actually dissolving, she called and, and was just brokenhearted talking to her mother and saying, you know, Russell's moving out, my marriage is ending. And her mother says something like, well, hang in there, we'll be home in a few weeks. And to me, that that is such a crisis moment. I mean, if that, God forbid that would happen to my kids, you know, uh, that, that I would be on the next plane, you know, it's like right. that, that is a, that is a, a, a horrible thing, especially for someone as fragile as Lori, and especially in this, given that they were in Florida, you know, not there's they're wintering in Florida. You know, it's not like he's got some like we can't possibly break away. And 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 uh, her mother didn't work, so she could have gotten on a plane and come up, but but uh, never happened. And you just think someone without that kind of support, which is why when I think about Lori Dan when, and and living with her, so to speak, when we're you know doing doing this book for so long. Um, my feelings for her, I mean, I, I ended up feeling a great deal of, of pity for her and sympathy in some ways. I mean, I think she was she was just in way, way over her head. I, I would never use the word evil to describe her, even though she did evil things, clearly, and was uh, sort of seemed like possessed by by evil impulses and instincts. But I just felt you, feel, you look at her whole life, look at how she was, how, the things that happened to her, and you think like, you know, yeah, she had a lot of opportunities handed to her. She had a lot of opportunities uh, in life, and 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 didn't take advantage of them. But but she was sick. She was she was a sick person, and she wasn't given the treatment that she needed. And this is what happened. And then, of course, you know, your heart completely breaks for the Corwins. Um, and and also, I, I wanted to add that uh, one of the things that <laughs> we we found this in, in in reporting the story was that. That it was really, really hard to get people in Winnetka to talk to us. So the police in Winnetka were really good; they talked to us, but the, the citizens of Winnetka did not want to talk about. Why us. is that? They just don't. It, it is if, if you ever covered like a crime in the city, uh, neighbors will come out and talk to you. They'll come out, and, you know, and, or and family members will come and they'll talk. And, you know, you, you see it on TV all the time, right? Someone gets right. shot, and someone and uh, here's the mother, here's the sister, and they talk, and they're standing in front of a bunch of balloons and. And, and stuffed animals and talking about their, you know, no. The, the, the Corwins talked to us, but the other families did not talk to us. We wanted to talk to the kids who were in the classroom or the kids' families to see how the kids were doing. No one, they would hang up on us. They would not talk to us. They, this was something that they just wanted to put behind them. There was even a controversy in Winnetka a couple of years later about whether they were going to rename a park for Nikki Corwin uh, because they thought this was going to just remind people of of this terrible incident that that happened. They ended up doing that. But I did want to say that that uh, a couple of years ago, I heard from one of the kids who's now you know, he's now forty, I guess, um, and he just wanted to talk to me. He had written an, a, a long manuscript about 
his experience about what it was to be a victim and how and how he had lived with this for so long and had not, had not been able to talk to people about it. And uh, and he's now a social worker at Rush, and and so I did I did a, a long column on him and like link people to his website, and he talked about you know the 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 fact that this is not we to us we see the immediate people who are affected by it right we see we see the 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 kid who's the, whose family dies and, and then and when then we see you know the, the the obvious main characters but then you have these secondary characters and even i'm i'm guessing there are there are tertiary characters too kids who weren't shot but were in the classroom that Witnesses, day who watched right. watched their friend die mm-hmm. uh and some of the police officers who responded to the scene who had to carry these kids out, including a dying boy. Um, and, and if you think about what that must have been like at places where it was so much more horrific, like Sandy Hook, where you have – and and the, those right. people and all the you know the, the families who were there, the, the survivors, the, the first responders, all these people. And they, and they carry this with them. And this, this – Peter Monroe got, got in touch with me. You know, uh, he, like I say, he's now he was eight back then. He was thirty eight when he got in touch with me. So, so it was a you know one of those uh, things where and he was and he was still really carrying around a lot and probably still you know it was a couple of years ago. So he probably still is. So, so uh, it's another thing to think about when you're thinking about these school shootings is that they happened for us in a little in a little bubble in a little um, news event bubble, right? We we watch the coverage and we read about it and then we and then it kind of just fades. But the away. ripple effect. The ripple effect touches. Is, all walks of society outside yeah. of the immediate yeah. victim. Which, you know, as we as I say that, it's also true of a lot of other violence too. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever, ever uh, read Alex Kotlowitz's book. Um, but uh, he, he, Alex has got a new book out about violence in Chicago and he, and he talks a, a lot about this, which is like you have the original players, but then you have the families and you have the, the you know, the other, the friends and, and the, the mentors and everyone else who's affected by, by violence. And which is why, you know, it is such a serious thing, a tough thing to deal with is that it's not just the, like the, the people we write about, but it's all the people around them, uh, which is, which is uh, certainly an aspect of the story that we didn't get into much because we, we tried, but we just didn't, we couldn't get to those people. You got so to a lot. Got to a lot, but there was a lot. We, there's a lot more we wanted to get. To. I don't know how much longer they would have wanted the book to be. So, so, but we did. So th- that raises a question about maybe some of the differences between how the press covered this murder spree then and how press covers school shootings now. Certainly, school shootings are much, much more frequent, and unfortunately, they just they almost lack the shock value that they must have had back then. I remember this incident vaguely as a child. I was in uh, school in Evanston. I remember the school, you know, going on lockdown. I remember lockdown. something happening, mm-hmm. something scary happening, yeah. my parents showing up. Uh, but, you know, now, it, so it seems like school shootings are, well, it doesn't seem like they are a weekly event. In the last 47 weeks, there have been 46 school shootings across the country. Most of those school shootings in 2019 were in high schools and elementary schools, uh, they generally involve handguns. They're generally committed by people age 14 to 19, the vast majority of them, uh, with sharp sharp spikes around the age 16 and 17. And I guess that raises a number of questions about what's causing all this, but I think your angle is particularly unique because you covered this then, and you're also experiencing it now. What are the differences between how you personally would approach this story and perhaps broadly how the press approaches it as well. Well, I do think that some of what's going on right now is is a copycat phenomenon that you when you have someone like 
Klebold and Harris and Columbine, and and you get the the coverage that they got. You know, the trench coat guys going into school and stuff like that. And then you, then you saw a lot of uh, you know other school shootings where where the the shooter or shooters were sort of mimicking that, where they they re, where they were thinking like, oh, we're going to get a lot of attention, and this is a way to get back at my bullies and so on. Um, and and so I think that that one of the things that we deal with in the media now is do we name the perpetrator and do we pay the kind of attention that we pay to the perpetrator that Joel and George and I did in this book because, because it arguably arguably glorifies it. it arguably glorifies I mean, I, I, mean I, I like to think that if you read this it's not at all it doesn't right. glorify her but but you know the truth is you look at the at the cover of the book and there's a picture of her and her name's on the cover and you're thinking if you're if you're someone who thinks well I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory now there'll be books written about me. Laura's on the cover of People magazine. It's notoriety. Yeah, it, it's notoriety, right. and and so we have scaled back. A, a lot of news organizations have scaled back on naming the shooters, and so we will maybe maybe name them once, but we don't do this kind of exploration, this kind of this kind of biographical look at them because we don't want them to become heroes, become folk heroes in a way, because some of them actually do become folk heroes. Like the, um, the uh, and I don't know the name because I, the name wasn't repeated often enough, but the Orlando nightclub shooter, that he became a folk hero to some people because, he, you know, he shot up gay nightclub and it was like, yeah, that's right. good. You know, the, so, so there's that, like you can, you can get your own sick community around you and so on. Alex so, Jones and the Sandy Hook yeah, denial community. The, the, yeah, all those people. Yeah, and 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 uh, I, I, as I, as I sit here now, I can't, I can't tell you the name of the shooter at uh, at, 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 at in Parkland, in Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School. I can't, I don't know that name because that whoever, the, I mean, that that kid has been written about, but not nearly to the extent that I think we went into the life of, of Lori Dan. And I, I don't, I don't think. That we inspired any copycats, but I don't think I don't think that a book like this could be or would be written today for for just that reason. Like mm -hmm. we don't want we don't want to have a whole book, uh, essentially a biography of uh, a, a mad woman who killed killed somebody because we feel like that glorifies her. And I think so, you know, and so the the risk that we have is that we don't we then don't understand right uh, what happens. Are you being like those parents in Winnetka? Are you being yes? It's a good question. Um, is the is the media are, by turning away from these people by not giving them the attention they crave? Are we not giving the problem itself? The we we, so we go and we talk about gun control and we talk about other issues and we talk generally about mental health, but we don't generally try. We we try to pull apart and find answers. But again, we don't. I think we don't do it as as deeply as we did in part because there's so many of them, right? You could, if you wrote, right. if you wanted to devote. Yeah, I mean, if you say forty-six school shootings, you can't. You know, no one's going to read forty-six books about <laughs> in forty-six weeks about about school shooters. Uh, so, so I think there's there is some way in which we become numb to this, and some way that we we are not maybe asking all the questions that we could or should be asking about it. Some of it's frustration. Well, like I said earlier, I, as I was reading it, I was identifying. You know, oh, you know, here was. An area where someone could have done something differently. Yes, you know, and so if many I hadn't, places. yeah, there were so many places. And um, if I hadn't read it, I wouldn't have. It wouldn't have sparked that thought process for me. And so, you know, I see both sides of it, but I I do see some value in analyzing 
the life of someone who devolves to this point because there will be others, there have been others, and we're failing to to put an end to this. And we've we haven't we haven't learned enough from well, not just failing to put an right, end to it, right. but it seems to be increasing exponentially. Right, exactly. We failed to put an end to it, and and it's it's getting worse. So, what are we allowing to cultivate in our society that we're you know we're we're not uncovering enough? I don't think. Yeah, although I'm not. Yeah, I mean, you look at each story, and it may be unique, or it may just be that you have these these kids who, or well, kids in many cases, you say they're the average age is what you know, the teenagers, right? You yeah. say fourteen and nineteen. That that there is a disaffectation that goes on. That there that these kids feel lonely and bullied and insignificant, and they feel like this is a way to make a statement. And there's some nihilism going on, and. Um, and I don't know what causes that. I mean, that you, I think kids have always been picked on. Kids have always felt lonely, and, and they've always felt like the teenage years are really hard. And yet, before you know the '80s, you didn't have these kids bringing guns to school and making the, a, a big final last hurrah display. And so, there's a real question in my mind: is how how much of this is you know, the, just the, when you have it happens all the time that it's going to happen more because there's nothing that's that, that is arresting it, and I don't, I'm not sure what what that would be, um, right? Because these these kids often don't. I mean, how many times have you read a story about this? Where the thing about Lori was that, that she had, there were so many signs. A lot of these kids, you read they say like, oh well. He was on the track team. He didn't have a lot of friends, but he seemed like a normal kid. Right. I mean, you'd never say that about Lori Dan. I mean, Lori Dan was. But well, was anyone? But but has anyone looked into with a finer tooth comb the way you did yeah. with Lori into those interactions? I don't I mean, know because it's, I mean, your book goes into obviously Russell Dan was uh, the linchpin to to getting that much detail. But like, you're inside their marriage. You're inside their home. You're inside their closets. Yes. I mean, you know what's going on, um, and you're getting a sense and a flavor for like what is this dangerous cocktail that's being made. And you don't hear that when we're when we're not going through the details with these other shooters, with these other perpetrators. So. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you can get that much detail about every person who does this because perhaps there's no one there bearing witness to it or there aren't parents that are paying that close of attention. But Yeah. Occasionally they do leave trails on social media. You'll right. see – you go back in retrospect and read their social media feeds and go like, oh, well, those those were all the warning signs. Yeah. But uh, see their four chan or eight chan or whatever chan they're up to. Whatever chan they're up to now, yeah. But the, but that the, they will have left some some clues, uh, and then and of course then you've got the situation. Well, well, if we can't stop the problem there, like we can't find these kids in their homes and say, okay, this kid is planning. Can you using school security keep the school safe? Right. Or can you somehow manage to keep firearms out of their hands? Mm-hmm. Um, and I gave up on gun control actually after Sandy Hook. I mean, if if Sandy Hook didn't move Congress and uh, to to enact stricter, you know, at least something on, on gun control, then nothing will. And so I just at that point I said, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna listen to people who when these things happen say, well, we just need to pass more gun control. I think we do, and I think it's possible to do that while still respecting the Second Amendment. 
But uh, uh, I just like – I'm so tired of that argument because I just feel like it's it never goes anywhere. I think you need to – you know, I, I understand why schools are now doing things like – have you seen this? There's a school design where like the hallways are curved now so that a shooter doesn't have a nice long uh, uh, shot. And there are like little cubbies that people can uh, – like walls that stick out so you can hide behind the walls. And so this is, they're trying to do it with school design and school security to, to – decrease the possibilities for mayhem but you know you, you, you take it out of the school building and it'll end up in the parking lot or in the uh in the in the football right. stadium uh they, you know they, they will find ways unfortunately to right. to do that so and it seems like all that goes back to exactly what you were talking about at the beginning of the hour which is that people said when this happened this wasn't supposed to happen in Winneka, but you don't hear people saying that anymore kids expect this to happen yeah these days you know, they're they're the almost active shooter drills, active shooter drills yeah. on a monthly basis in schools. They, there's well, nothing unusual. And about and it. and even even uh, a lot of school, but most schools, every school I think now is locked down. You try to go to right. uh, elementary school, they're all locked. You know, and and a lot of schools, I think the high schools have metal detectors. My kids went to Chicago Public High Schools, and they walk through metal detectors every day. But it's interesting to think that you go back to 1988, and Lori Day just walked in. Oh, she was walking the halls for a significant period of time. Yeah, and 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 so several schools and nobody and yeah. walked into the classroom and sat in the classroom observing the students. Right. with the teacher sitting next to her, and the the substitute teacher assumed she was what a student, a student teacher. teacher? I she was a student teacher. Yeah. So again, another red flag too. If a man had done that. Would people have react the same way? But I'll That's, put a pin in know, that for now. I think, well, yeah, um, I think you're right. You know, that, <laughs> you're making that, the point here. So that reminds me of something that we talked about uh, when we were when we had our call last week to, you know, kind of flesh some of these subjects out. Which is, you you said something I thought was really poignant. You said that the Lori Dan shootings are both relevant and nostalgic. Yeah. What made you say that? Well, I mean, it's it's nostalgic because of the times that that it happened in. It was it was so much more of an innocent time that the idea that it couldn't happen in Winnetka was very prevalent. That people really didn't think it could happen there. So that the schools were not locked. Right. So that you know the kids would you know, people would adults would walk into the school. Parents could walk in. It was just it was a totally different different time. Uh, yet it's relevant because we have to you know keep, we have to take seriously. When when someone is doing things like making the kind of threatening calls that she was making and buying guns and so on, that we have to be able to put all these things together and then be able to intervene. So if there's a sense that when when we review this story, that people say like, "Hey, I see some real warning signs here, and we we have to take steps. We have to you know really take this seriously and not say, oh, just this is just quirkiness. This is a uh, you know, just what an oddball, what a zany young woman collecting meat, you know, uh, or slashing up furniture and all the things that she did, that you, you have to really realize that these things are, are, in fact, warning signs. Now, we haven't seen, as far as I know, we haven't seen anything that, that comes close to actually replicating this particular form of violent madness on her part. We haven't, there hasn't been like another, in fact, just about all these shooters are men, right? This is right. one of the one thing that's really unusual that it's a woman. And that is probably part of it, another part of the reason why this was such a, a big, you know, Jennifer's point. If this had been a guy, if this had been, this had been Larry Dan, I'm not, it wouldn't, might not have been nearly as big a story even then, even in 1988, it might not mm -hmm. have been as big a story. But, you know, when you, when you have, I, I don't think we've seen a situation where someone has shown as many warning signs 
and has, has gone on to kill kids, you know, random kids like that. Uh, I don't think we've seen that. And I, you know, I don't see every mayhem story in the country, but I, I don't think that's happened. So, so it might be that, that this has served as a little bit of a warning to people somewhere. I don't know. Someone says, oh, this sounds like that woman in Winnetka who, who uh, we, we needed to step in and take away her guns. Because if she didn't have guns, you know, she was so ineffective. You think about all the, you know, the number of people she planned to kill, or right. she wanted to kill. I mean, it was in the dozens. That's a memorable passage in the book where you talk about her intended victim count. Yeah. If she had been, quote unquote, successful yeah. at detonating the bombs, at poisoning yeah. uh, all of the individuals that she had intended to, the, the death toll would have been much more successful. It, it, is, it is actually stunning as you look at it that, she, that only one person died. I mean, she, when she said, you know, tried to set fire to the house, tried to poison all these people. Nobody, nobody, you know, went for it. She had a gun in a classroom of all these kids, and she just, uh, you know, I don't. It is, it is a miracle that only one kid died. It really is, um, and and it is. She was so ineffective at everything she ever did, including this. Thank goodness, right? So, so, uh, uh, yeah, it was. It was uh, and as as you look at it, you think what what the body count could have been here, what she wanted the body count to be. Uh, was horrific. So, and on that note, we'll take a break. This episode of At the Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So we like to close each episode out with a game we call Stranger in Legal Fiction. Eric, the rules are very simple. Jen and I have done a little research, found a strange law that's still on the books somewhere but probably shouldn't be. Made another one up. We're going to quiz you and each other to see if we can distinguish strange fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? Sounds fun. Let's go. Jen, why don't you lead us off? All right. First potentially real, potentially fake law. In Galesburg, Illinois, there is a statute stating that no person may keep a smelly dog. Real or fake? Second option. In Kentucky, it's against the law to declaw your cat before it's one year old. Real or fake? What do you think, Eric? I think Kentucky. I think the Kentucky law is, is real. The Galesburg law is false. I agree. Why are you thinking that? I've, I've read stories recently that there is a lot of concern about declawing cats. Oh, is that right? That, that a lot of people are, think it's a really bad thing to do. I don't have cats, so I don't – I have a dog in the fight, so to speak. But um, um, but uh, I think the Kentucky law is real. That sounds right. It's just a more extreme form of animal cruelty rather than not bathing your dog. 
then you would both be wrong. Oh, no. Really? (laughs) The real law is in Galesburg. No smelly dogs allowed, apparently. Um, And the Kentucky one, I literally just made that up. I don't know where I came up with it. You probably saw the same articles I did about decoying cats. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of mean to decoy cats. So here's my question, counselor. How do you, what does smelly mean? (laughs) So let me say, when I I pulled this, there was an entire discourse about that very, like, how would we ever determine how you define smelly and so forth? I, you know, I don't know, but I'm sure. Was that in the health code or where was it? I did not, I don't know. I just found an article that was highlighting fake and real things in Illinois and I went with that. So I'm assuming it's in the health code. We had a, Where else would it be? We had right. a gassy dog for a long time, and she would not have been welcome in Galesburg. I, we, Next episode, I'll come with my citation. All right, thank for you. The, for this one. You're, you're a lawyer, Jen. Yes. It's expected. All right, round two, option one. In Texas, it is legal to open carry a handgun in the state capitol building. Option number two. In Texas, public universities and colleges are required to allow their students to open carry on campus. Second one real. I would say the second one is real, yeah. That sounds very Texas to me. <laughs> yeah. They're required to allow them to. Required right? to allow them to. Right. And I don't and I think that generally my my sense of this is that uh, when it comes to things like carrying guns, that lawmakers are happy to have people carry them anywhere but where they are and where they're doing their business. So so I will go with the campus. And agreed. Jennifer, agreed. So I would say that this is one of the few examples where the lawmakers are putting their money where their mouth is. You can open carry in the state capitol. Public universities are required to allow their students to conceal carry. Conceal carry. Not open carry. So that was a – Kind of, it was, it was I, a tricky I, so one. I, so I, I don't go home with a prize. I think your, your, in, your instincts were right. We'll, we'll still give you a CBA partner. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was going to win the car. Darn it. <laughs> and that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Eric Zorn of the Chicago Tribune, for this interesting and informative, if saddening, conversation. The book is Murder of Innocence. I have to say it's 30 years old, but it remains a must-read, and I highly recommend it. I also want to thank my co-hosts and our executive producer, Jen Byrne, as well as Ricardo Islas on sound and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs>